Well, it is good to be with everybody today. Um, and I'm excited to jump into our text. What a powerful time of worship, of just adoring God together and proclaiming his righteousness and his truth. And we get to be in 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 to 21 in your service sheet where you sat down. You should have had a sheet that will have the text so that as I do read through it today, uh, you can read along with me and, and follow along. For anybody that's new here, my name is Justin. I welcome you uh, to join our church today. I'm the pastor here. For anybody online, welcome. We're so glad that you can come today. Uh, we are excited to be together with one another. Um, we have been going through a series in 1 John called Real Love. And uh, if you are new to us and joining into this series, this is the Apostle John who also wrote Revelation, which is what I just quoted uh, at the end of, of worship. He was one of the 12 disciples who then become one of the apostles that are in charge of really establishing the church uh, when Jesus ascends. And so uh, these apostles wrote letters to the churches. And one of the letters that were written that was passed down to us was this uh, letter or epistle, 1 John. And so we are kind of getting towards the end where we're in the latter half of the letter and we're in chapter four, verses 13 to 21. We're gonna be talking about God's abiding love. You know, there, there is one question that I want us to, we're gonna be asking and answering today. And it is an important question because of not only how many times I receive this question, but how many ways uh, we receive it and the importance that the answer holds to our faith. That question is, what is the surest way to know we have God and his spirit in us? What is the surest way to know that we have God and his spirit in us? This often asked question is just as often answered incorrectly, I would say. Um, and the reason why it is answered incorrectly is because we as people oftentimes put the wrong emphasis on things in Scripture that Scripture does not emphasize as much as others. And so John gets in that today, and we're going to have a good time getting in it together. And so we're going to start by reading verses 13 to 16 together. Again, you can read on your sheet. If you're online, you'll get a link from Winnie, and you can read along with that from verses 13 to 16. Let's begin. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God... God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So if you've been tracking with us during this series, we have talked a lot about this word abiding which is remaining in or living in or, or staying in, persevering in with something. And so we have that word here a lot. And so we, this, what we start off with, John says, is we know that we are abiding in God or remaining in God, and he is abiding in us or remaining in us two ways. Verse 13 says, because the, he of the Spirit given to us, this is one way we know that God abides in us and us in him. 
And then the second way is because we testify that the Father sent Jesus, the Son, to be the Savior of the world. That is in verses 14 and 15. Then what John does, because these two things we've already heard about, we've talked about, we've talked about the Spirit, we've talked about abiding in God, about having this confession, knowing if our confession is true or if our confession is false and how to test that against a true confession and a non-true one. And so John now takes these arguments and he, he takes it a bit further and he makes these two things synonymous with something else that he has been talking with a lot during this letter, and that is love. And we see that in verse 16, and this is how John's logic goes that we can follow along with that God loves us, God is love, and we abide in God. Therefore, when we abide in love, we abide in God and God in us. So John is taking these concepts, so many concepts as we've, we've talked over and over about, and he's circling back to all of them, and he's starting to tie the knots together. And he is saying that love abiding in God and God abiding in us is the same thing that he's been talking about, this other concept of love, that when we abide in God, that we are abiding in, we are remaining in love. And then his love, or, and, and God is remaining and abiding in us. And he's, he's making sure that we are starting to understand all of these different things that John has been talking about and, and bringing them together. And if you weren't here the last couple of weeks, we, this is two things that we went over. Uh, I think it was two weeks ago, David talked about testing the spirits. Um, and, and so John talked about what first testing the spirits, knowing that if we're, if we're listening to the spirit or listening to false spirits, Oh, and then the second thing that we talked about last week that Melvin was talking about was the test of love of being in God. And so John is making this logic more and more clear. He's adding just the, these, these blinders on so that we can understand what he's talking about. We've talked about what spirits are not God, right? We talked about the spirit of the Antichrist and what that means, the, the, the people that do not proclaim Christ and are against what Christ believes. And we talked about testing to see if our confession is true. And so John brings those things together, and now we talk about the true spirit and the true confession together, and how those two things together produce what? They produce love. They produce love. And so what this means is that being in God is the same as being in love, and love being in you and God being in you. It is this beautiful mutual indwelling that the Bible talks about of God dwelling in us and us dwelling in him. And when we think of this beautiful indwelling, we have to think about the mutual indwelling of us and God and God and us and how this is a perfect picture of love. And that when we have this mutual indwelling of us and God and God in us, that love is also in this mutual indwelling, that God is love and God is in us, therefore love is in us. And why do I keep on saying the same thing over and over and over again? Because, well, first of all, 
John is saying it over and over and over again. If you haven't realized, it's probably the 10th time we're talking about this topic here, and it's because we struggle with this. Two questions I have heard about many times are what? How do I know I am still saved? And how do I know the Spirit of God is in me? These are questions that not only have I heard about debated in this church, but are questions that uh, have been asked of me and questions that I hear asked of often in the world at large. So what I want to do is go back to verse 13 now that we've kind of started in this beginning of this passage and we've read this first chunk. Read verse 13 and 14. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Remember, we know. How do we know? Because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. We have to understand this fully because to Keep on going to understand the rest of what John is going to talk about. We have to understand this. We know we are saved because he has given us the Spirit and we confess Jesus is Lord. So there are these uh, two witnesses that you can say that attest to our salvation that John has here. It is the Spirit and the confession. And we see this happen over and over again in Scripture. I'll read three references for you that there are two things that attest to our salvation. It is always the Spirit and confession. In the, in the, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 26 to 27, he says, but when Jesus is saying this, but when the Helper, the Helper is the Spirit, comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about you, and you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So we see that, again, that two things that are attesting. We have the Spirit, and we have the confession, or in this word, the witness. In Acts chapter 5, verse 32, we see, it says, and we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey. So we see that giving of the Holy Spirit again, the helper as we read in the past, but in Acts, the giving of the Holy Spirit and the confession of the believer. These two things work together to assure us of our salvation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, it says, Paul, this is Paul the Apostle now, a, a different person, writing to a letter to the Corinthians. He says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So here we have again the Spirit and confession working together. These are the things that work together to show us that we are saved, that we are walking with God. And so how do we know these two things? Well, the first one, the confession, is pretty easy, right? We can figure out the confession part by saying, are we able to say with all of our heart and clean conscience, we believe Jesus is Lord? Now, when I say with all of our heart and clean conscience, that means when you actually believe something, right? if you believe a movie is good, what do you do? You go and you watch it. Right? If you believe a show is good, you finish the rest, you finish the show. When you believe that and with a clear conscience that Jesus is Lord, that you can confess that and you say that, then what happens? You will follow him. So this first part, if we can confess out of our mouth, true confession, clean conscience, Jesus is Lord, we have that. The second part, but what about the Spirit? 
how do we know that the Spirit dwells in us? This part, we get a little more fun. How do we know that the Spirit dwells in us? Because that could be, that is, there is a lot of debate that people have about when the Spirit comes, how the Spirit manifests itself, and you hear all different things about the Spirit. And the Spirit becomes this kind of uh, mystical boogeyman that sometimes shows up and sometimes doesn't. And if you work hard enough, shout loud enough, dance long enough, the Spirit will come. So how do we know that we have the Spirit? Well, if you pray in tongues really loud, you have the Spirit, right? That's what Scripture says. If you can prophesy accurately, this is another one, you have the Spirit, right? If you can pray for someone and see them get healed, you have the Spirit. You can be assured that you have the Spirit. If you have enough faith, crazy faith, to become rich and have all the American blessings, well then, you have the Spirit. No, obviously, I mean, hopefully you were seeing that I was being facetious there, that this is not the Spirit, right? Jesus says, some of you will come before me on judgment day and you will have casted out demons, you will have prophesied, you will have done great miracles in my name, but I will say, depart from me, for I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. How is it that these are how we know if the Spirit is with us is if we do these things and Jesus can say that he will say, depart from us. Because this nowhere in Scripture is the fruit of the Spirit. It is nowhere to be found. Right? So what is it? It is this over and over and over and over again. It is this, if we have love, we know that the Spirit has come. If we have love, we know that the Spirit has come. Because Christian love that we see in the Bible is so powerful, it, it, it is so mind-blowing, it is so anti-world conforming to what love is and kindness towards other is that the only way we can possibly have the love that Scripture talks about is if the Spirit is at work in our life. We can prophesy, and guess what? The Spirit is not at work in our life. We can heal people, and guess what? The Spirit is at, not at work in our life. We can see amazing things happen and the Spirit not be there. But if we love with the love of Scripture, the only way that is possible is if the Spirit is at work in your life. We confuse so often because of the world, the gifts with the fruit. The gifts and the fruit. The fruit is if this thing is planted here, it abides, it remains, and it has produced fruit. A gift somebody can have. I can give a gift to a random person and that person not be my son. But the fruit, the fruit is the indwelling. The fruit is the evidence and the fruit that is always number one, without fail, is love. This Christian love that is so powerful that says we consider others more important than ourselves, that is so antithetical to our human nature 
to how we want to go, how the world speaks about everything, about consumerism, about what we should do. This Christian love that says to have patience for people who desire in their actions to be dealt with roughly, right? This is Christian love. To sacrifice my own wealth, health, and happiness for the benefits of others, this is Christian love. It is not the pursuit of happiness for my individual freedom. It is the sacrifice of my happiness for others. This is Christian love. That is the only universal evidence of the Spirit in all believers that trumps every other evidence that we can think of. This is the only thing that trumps everything. John already said it here about this love, but I want you to see that it's not only here. This is constant. In 1 Corinthians 13, we see Paul puts it this way. You can pray in tongues, but if you have no love, what are you? A noisy gong. You are just white noise that bothers people. You can prophesy, Paul says, all oracles have all knowledge and the craziest faith, but if you have no love, you are nothing, he says. Nothing. In Galatians, the first fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. In 1 Corinthians, it says, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is what? Love. This is not an accident. It is Scripture coordinating all of Scripture, is the Spirit, sorry, coordinating all of Scripture so that it testifies of the the same thing. And that is this. Love is the evidence backwards and forward that the Spirit has come to remain in your heart. Our assurance of the Spirit in us is not power. It is not personal blessing. It is not leadership gift. It is not speaking ability. It is not charisma. It is love. John then takes this argument to make a case for what mature love really looks like. He wants us to understand it is about love. If you say you abide in God, we've talked about it a ton. If you say God abides in you, we've talked about that a ton. If you say those things are true, then guess what? Love abides in you because God is love. And if this is true, then he says, we're gonna read in verse 17 to 21 now. He then takes this further. What is This mean, what is mature love? What does it look like? He says in verse 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is also are we in this world, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen with his own eyes, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 
Mature and perfect love brings deep confidence first, Paul says, that when the day of judgment comes, I will have nothing to fear. This is a beautiful thing. All thoughts of punishment, John says, are cast out. You know, we constantly use that verse for everything. Perfect love casts out all fear. This is not talking about that we're never gonna experience any type of fear and situation. If we do, then we don't have perfect love in us. What is this talking about? This is talking about judgment day. That when we stand before God, we will stand with our back straight and our head held high because we will have nothing to fear on that day of judgment. We will know that the perfect love of God that we have experienced that abides in us and us in him will allow us to stand before judgment in confidence that we are saved. And so mature love, perfect love, looks first as truly understanding that Jesus already took on the punishment. Melvin talked about this last week in verse 10 where it says, he became the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is the sacrificial appeasement that everything that we have done wrong, Jesus already sacrificed for it. And so everything that can be held against us on judgment day in that courtroom has already been dealt with. And so when God abides in us and us in him and perfect love is in us and we have matured, we realize there is nothing to fear on judgment day. That when I stand before God, his love says, will cover a multitude of sin. It will cover all I have done and I can stand before him confidently. So mature love, love that is perfected in us, changes our relationship with God first and foremost. And it takes on a condemning fear relationship and turns it into a loving, confident relationship. So that on that day that all of us will stand before God, we will stand there knowing we are fully loved and fully covered by the blood of the Lamb. Amen. Secondly, Paul says, mature or perfect love is never complete without peer-focused love. Peer-focused love. I'm using that specifically. John transitions to this thought in verse 19. He says this, we love because what? He first loved us. He first loved us. God is the initiator of all love. That is why if we have love, we must have the spirit because true love can only be initiated by God, by his spirit, by the helper coming down, entering into us, transforming us, molding us into a perfect image of his son, into the model that his son left, Jesus. And God is the initiator of this. We don't wake up one morning and decide, I'm gonna be really patient with people. If you've ever tried that, you know how much of a fail it is. You don't wake up one morning out of the blue and just say, 
man, I'm, I'm just going to be completely sacrificial towards everybody I know. Can't wait to give away everything in my bank account to everybody in need. No, usually we do what the rich young ruler did in that scenario and say, God, I followed all the commandments. What else can I do? And Jesus looked at his heart and saw that love was not perfected there. The spirit was not there. And he said, give away all that you have to the poor. And what happened? The rich young man walked away sad because he had great possessions. We don't just wake up and say, I'm going to start putting people first in my life. I'm going to love God with all my heart today. Because when we do that, when we initiate the love, when we say, well, I'm going to be patient. I'm going to love God with all my heart. I'm going to be completely obedient. I, what is that? There's too many eyes there for my liking. Because when I do it, guess what? It's based off of my willpower. It's based off of my ability to change myself. It's based off of what? My transformative power over my life. And anybody that has been on the earth long enough, you realize willpower has a beginning and an end. Motivation is here one minute. It is gone the next. The only true love that can transform us and take us from the beginning of our life to the end of our life, that can persevere through everything, that can endure through the biggest trials, that can produce hope, that builds character in us, is what? God initiated love in us. And we have to be clear with where this starts. Because it's very easy to just walk out of here and just say, I'm going to do better. And we've missed it. We've missed it. What we are doing is we are walking out moralistic religion like every other religion on the earth where we have this list of rules that we are gonna try to do our best to do and when we make it to heaven, we're not standing there in confidence. What are we doing? We are standing there in fear, hoping that the good has outweighed the bad where God says, if there is any bad that is bad enough, you cannot be in the holy of holies. But yet if God initiates that love, then true love comes and we stand there confidently. And that love endures and it is patient and it starts working first in our life. And what happens? God's deep, unfailing first love for us is the source then for all the love, care, and action we give towards God and others. And that must be the grounding thing that keeps us in our life. Christian love is so powerful, it can only be truly initiated and modeled in God first. No human being, unless that human is fully God and fully human, can model what true Christian scriptural love is. That is how powerful the love is that we are talking about that no one can possibly walk this out unless it is initiated by a creator God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and can do the work required in our hearts to bring us to that place. And if Christian love is not present in our relationship with others, then God was never present in us, John says. John makes it really clear. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For he does not love his brother whom he has seen. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is the third and final lie that John gives of the letter. He talks about lies three main times, and the three lies are this. The first lie that we covered was moral lie. If we say we have fellowship with God but walk in, darkness, in the darkness of disobedience, we lie. The second lie we went over was the doctrinal lie. If we say we have the Father while denying the deity of the Son, we lie. The third lie is today's lie, the social lie. If we say we love God while hating a brother or a sister in the church, we lie. It is impossible to have God, to say we love God, and then hate someone else. If we are doing that, then what happens? We have deceived ourselves. The Spirit is not with us. We can say all we want so we are blue in the face, but the Spirit has not come to confirm that we love God and that his love is in us. John gives this amazing example. You cannot hate someone you see, but claim to love someone you cannot see. The implication is this. It is much easier to love someone physically before you, here and present, with us, than it is to love God whom we do not see. I think many times we have that backwards in our head. We think it is much easier to love God than it is to love the people right next to us. John says the opposite is true. If we love, unquote, God while being able to marinate in hate for other believers, then we do not love the God of the Bible. We love an idol and false God that we have manufactured and erected in the image of ourself. We love a God who loves what we love and hates what we hate. Not a God who changes what we love and changes what we hate. See, if you struggle with loving others, which I would assume many of us do, because I do, and so maybe I'm trying to make myself feel a little bit better. Someone, right, we, this is a thought we think of often, someone did something to hurt me, and I don't want to forgive them. Well, the, the religious way to answer this then is to say, well, I, I, just, I just need to force myself to forgive them. I'm just going to go to them and I'm going to tell them I forgive them. But many times our heart has not forgiven them. We have not moved on. We become bitter. We think about it often. And we just think, I, I, we think of this rules-based mentality. I must do this. I must do this. I must do this. And we miss what John is saying here. This isn't a call to work up enough courage to go tell someone you forgive them, but a call to sit in the beauty of God's love for you. As you abide in him and his love, his love, what? It says, John, will abide in you. So meditate on God's love. 
In 1 John 1, 9, earlier we read, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Think about all the times God has forgiven me, has shown perfect love towards me. I can think of all the sins, some sins that I have never wanted to share with anybody before because they seem too heinous to ever come out of my mouth again. And some things that I just think, man, how could anybody love me after I've done something like that? God has forgiven us of those things. Meditate on that. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, for our sake, He made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because of my sin, because of our collective sin, Jesus was made to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus did this so that we can become the righteousness of God. He forgave us of our sin. He cleansed us of all unrighteousness. We are pure before him. We don't deserve it. We shouldn't have it. But here we are, righteous before God, confident before God, loved by God that he became sin for us. When you realize how deeply God has forgiven you and how little you deserve it, that love will transform your heart to forgive all who have wronged you. See, if we start with the I must instead of the God has, then we are walking into tricky territory. We are walking into willpower, motivation, pep talks, and speeches. I have been a Christian long enough to know none of that works. The only thing that works is the true, tangible indwelling of the Spirit of God in my life to change my heart and transform and renew my mind. I'm tired of playing games, faking it till I make it. None of that works anymore. What I need and what I need only is the love of God that transforms my life so that I can love others. I've been, every, I've been through every Christian fad and everything that you can imagine. I've been through every bad theological understanding of Scripture. And the only thing that makes any sense is that because God has loved me, it has transformed me and I can love others. If you've had a hard time being generous towards people in need, don't begrudgingly give to the poor as first steps. And think, oh, I gotta give to this person a dollar because God tells me to. That's not the, the act that God is asking for. What is John saying? What do we do? Meditate on God's love for you. Where it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Man, the love that God has for us. He first loved us, that he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that we might become rich. That generosity, that type of love changes my heart. So that holding on to my pennies in my account isn't as meaningful anymore when I realize how much I have been given. I can now give. Because what I give is nothing compared to what has been given. 
In Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, it says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. He gave up all that he had. He came down from his throne room in heaven and he took on slavery for us. That is wild generosity. That when I meditate on what Jesus has done, when I meditate on his love first and foremost for me, my heart begins to open up. My heart begins to be soft, not only towards God, but to others. It is understanding what he has done before what I have to do. If you've had enough of your kids and are tired of the sacrifice time and resources that they require, just remember that we are God's children. This could be for other people's kids. Who has had enough of other people's kids too? I knew I do <laughs> and did. But remember God's, we are God's children. Our tantrums have been worse. He has dealt with us for a longer period of time and he still lovingly guides our way. For parents, don't try harder at being a good parent. Escape to God's love instead of the TV to be filled with new life. It's so easy to escape to all these different scenarios and say, this will make me feel better for the next day. And God says, come to me. My love will perfect love in you. We'll give that patience, kindness, that long suffering that every parent knows is required of kids. <laughs> in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, what we just read, John says this, God is love. It never says God is one of the gifts of the Spirit. It doesn't say God is faith. It doesn't say God is tongues. It doesn't say God is prophecy. To know God is to know love. When we walk in love, we can be assured God lives in us and us in him. We are assured that his Spirit is present and that we will not be condemned on the final day. We have to understand the litmus test of our Christianity. It is not how well we perform. It is not how great our gifts are. It is not how powerful we are. It is not how good my sermons are. It is not how loud we worship. It is what? It is love. It is love. It is love. And it is love from the beginning of Scripture. We see it in Deuteronomy in the law that it says, love God with your heart. In Leviticus 19, it says to love others as yourself. In Matthew chapter 7, it says that all the law is hinged on this, that you love God with all your heart and you love each other. This is what the law is summed up as being. It is love. Galatians says the first fruit of the Spirit is love. 1 Corinthians 13 says if you have everything but not love, you are nothing. It is love. It is love. It is love. So when you want to ask yourself, what should I emphasize in my Christian walk? What should I strive towards? What should I look at my heart and wonder, am I doing well? Is God really manifesting himself in my heart and in my life? Asked, have I loved? Have I loved God? And have I, have I loved my sister and my brother? Have I loved? 
And if you find your lives to be unloving towards God and others, remember the only way we can begin the journey of love is by recognizing the only way we can love is because God first loved us. Allow that love to transform your heart. Allow that love to do its work. Don't try to do it on your own. Don't try to manufacture it. God doesn't need your help. If you just go to him and say, God, I believe that you are Lord and I believe that you have loved me. And I sit here today knowing that you have loved me, that you have emptied yourself, that you became poor so that I can be rich in your spirit today. I believe that you who knew no sin became sin so that I can be the righteousness of God. I believe that today. Then watch how the spirit comes and transforms your heart and your life by the greatest love ever known. And allow God to do the work from there. Can you stand with me and pray? Father, we thank you that it is by your love that we can receive love today. It is by your love that we can give love today. And we thank you that all the scriptures attest to and point to the great love that you have for us and the great love that you call us to have for you and for others. Lord, let us walk away today putting everything in their place. All the great things that you talk about in Scripture, all the great gifts, all the great fruit that we see in Scripture, let us put it all in its place. That we would not strive for the things Lord, that are inferior to the greater things that you have called us to. That we would strive only to know your love and nothing else. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.